I was speaking with an agnostic recently. An agnostic is someone who thinks that God may exist, but we're just not absolutely sure. And in the context of our conversation, I said, just play a thought experiment with me. If God does exist, if he's our creator, well, then we would have obligations to him, right? He would be worthy of our obedience and our worship, right? And he agreed. And, and, and that's really not all that hard of a point to grant, that if God does exist, if he is our creator and maker, then we owe him our obedience and our worship. Now, this morning, I'm mindful that I'm speaking, for the most part, to those who believe in God. For you, it is a given that God does exist, that he definitely made you, and more than that, that he definitely gave his son, Jesus Christ, to offer you forgiveness for sin. Now this amps up the rightfulness of your worship. God would be due your worship merely by the fact that he is creator. But the fact that he is also our savior, oh, this steps up our responsibility to worship, doesn't it? I have a question for you, though. Are you giving him the worship he deserves? I know you know he's worthy of it. But I wonder if there's a disconnect between what you say and what you're actually doing. I wonder if you are agreeing with me right now, but actually not offering him his due. Well, we're going to see something similar in Israel today in our text, and I think we can be helped by it. Here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. The Lord is our Father and our King. Beware of offering Him lackluster, impure, or begrudging worship. Would you turn with me to Malachi chapter 1? Verse 6, if you're new, we're going through two minor prophets at the very end of the Old Testament, so you'll find this book uh, right before the New Testament. The first book in the New Testament is Matthew. If you turn back left one book, you'll get to Malachi, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, and our text today, shocker, is about lackluster, impure, and begrudging worship. There are two main sections in our text. The problem is revealed in verses 6 through 14, and then those largely responsible for the problem, the priests, are rebuked in 2, 1 through 9. So let's start reading 1, 6 through 14. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? 
by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Well, this is a mess. And I think we can break it down into four basic problems. And if you want to look at your outline, you can just follow right along. First, they're despising the Lord's name. They're delivering impure offerings. They're defaming the Lord's greatness. And they're disregarding their obligations. So let's just look at each in turn. So first up, they're despising God's name. Look at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I, them am a fa- if I then am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name? The Lord argues from lesser to greater here. In Scripture, it's a given that a son should honor his father, and it's a given that a servant should honor his master. That being the case... How much more should God's people honor God? Moreover, these terms of father and master, these aren't just mere metaphors. They reflect Israel's very real relationship with the Lord. God is Israel's father, covenant Lord. And so it's entirely right and fitting for her to to fear and honor him. This is not some insecure, strutting tyrant who wants compliments from his officers. Just imagine for just a second despising your dad. And in our thought experiment, your father is a good father. Imagine you hearing what he has to say and you blowing him off and walking away and saying, who cares? Whatever. He's so picky. This is what Israel is doing. 
And her priests, who are supposed to stand for his honor, are totally in on it and allowing it to happen. So what are they doing? Second problem. Delivering impure offerings. At the end of verse 6, they say, How have we despised your name? Now, we don't know how they ask that question. Did they ask it with an attitude? How have we despised your name? Or did they ask it inquisitively, ignorantly? How have we despised your name? We don't know, but they don't know how they've despised his name. And so God says in verse 7, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Fundamental at issue here is impure offerings. When the people bring offerings to the priest, they're bringing the blind, the lame, and the sick. Now, you may not think that's evil. Let me help you see it. First of all, in the Old Testament, the temple is where God's people enjoy direct access to God's life-giving holiness. This, friends, is where their sins are forgiven. This is where their fellowship with God is restored. This is where they offer thanksgiving and praise. And the altar is where so much of this takes place. Located just outside the temple proper, God's people would bring offerings here and then the priests would receive them upon the altar and then offer them up to God on their behalf. Now these offerings, above all else, had to be pure. Listen to Leviticus 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, those are the priests, and the descendants of Levi, and all the people of Israel, and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or free will offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. Why did offerings have to be perfect? Why so costly? Why without blemish? Because God is worthy of that. Listen, these Old Testament regulations may seem odd to us as 21st century Westerners, but they teach timeless truth. And here's the timeless truth to bank. God is worthy of the best from His people. God is worthy of the best from His people. But they're offering leftovers here. The blind, the lame, the sick, 
as they scan their herd to figure out what to give to the Lord, do you know what they pick? What costs them the least and what doesn't matter to them and what's so sick it's worthless and about to die on their own. And let's admit it, times are tight, bills are stacking up, they're working two jobs, but times like that are when our priorities are revealed. What money do you give to God when you don't have enough money to go around? What time do you give to God when you don't have enough time to go around? And what's worse, they don't even seem to get it that this means that they're despising God Himself after He brings up their offerings as evidence that they're despising His name. They come back and they say, but how have we polluted you? In other words, like, well, okay. I mean, I'm I'm not offering what I should offer on the altar, but how does that really despise you, God? Just a total disconnect. Missing the obvious that what you give to God in worship reveals whether or not you really honor and fear God. What you think about God can't be separated from the worship of God. And this leads us to our third problem, defaming the Lord's greatness. Pick up halfway through verse 8. So, these offerings, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any one of you, says the Lord of hosts? Pretend for a minute that you live in the, in the UAE and you're invited to bring a dish for a banquet with the sheikh, the king. Will you bring rotten meat? Will you bring moldy bread? Will you bring these things to the sheikh and then seek the sheikh's favor? No, of course not. That's preposterous. And you know what that really shows? It shows that you don't think much of him. It shows that you count him of little worth and of little significance. It shows that you despise him. That's what it shows. And that's what Israel's doing. You can understand God's response then. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says, I would rather you shut down the temple than to keep on doing what you're doing. Because you're defaming my name. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You see, their actions are actually working against God's eternal design to glorify His name. 
From the beginning, God designed and desired His people to show the nations just how precious and worthy and wonderful He is. But that's not happening. The, the way any, they are acting, any onlookers are more likely to think, well, that's not much of a God that they serve. And what's worse, they don't even seem to care. Problem number four. They disregard their obligations. Look at verse 13. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame and sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Honestly, I, I, think that, I think that these are the most frightful verses in the entire text this morning. After all that's been said, the priests don't care. What a weariness this is. The worship of God has become a chore, a burden, a drudgery. It has become insignificant to them. Their duties are just that, duties, and not delight. They willingly receive offerings they know displeases God, and they don't care. And the people, the people are in the same boat. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what has been blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So they have fitting and appropriate offerings in their flocks, but they bring what's blemished to them, to the people too. Worship has become a chore, a burden, a drudgery. It has become insignificant. And brothers and sisters, please keep in mind, this is not some tyrannical, power-hungry despot. This is the covenant Lord who set His love upon them. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. There was nothing special about them. There was nothing that commended them to Him. Nevertheless, God in His grace set His love upon them. Saved them from Egypt. Gave them His covenant. Gave them an inheritance. Most recently brought them back from captivity in Babylon. And this, this is how they worship Him. They need to be rebuked. And so we turn to chapter 2. The priests are the worst offenders because the priests are actually charged to instruct God's people and are in charge of making sure that worship is pure. And so God has a scathing word to them. Look at verses 1 through 4. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen and will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. 
So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. God says, take this to heart. Brothers and sisters, this is a call to repent and a warning of judgment if they don't. Now, the judgment looks like multiple things. Number one, God will curse their blessings. Now, what does that mean? Well, you you probably don't remember this, but at the end of Numbers, the end of Numbers 6, the Lord calls the priests to bless the people. He says this, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, this is what God wanted the priests to say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I, the Lord, will bless them. What an amazing privilege that these priests have the privilege to pray over God's people. God says, I'm going to turn that prayer of blessing on its head. Your prayers of blessing will become a curse. Two. God will judge their offspring. This either means he will blight the seed of their land or the seed of their loins, their children. Three, God will spread dung on their faces and dung on their offerings. Now, listen, aside from the gag reflex in your mind from a natural perspective, understanding this theologically is even worse. Dung has no place in temple worship. There's only one place dung exists, and that's outside the camp, away from the presence of God, for God to say that He will smear dung on their faces and dung on their offerings is a poetic way of saying they will become so spiritually disgusting that He will remove them from His presence for good. Strong warnings. What would God have the priests do? He'd have them honor and fear Him as they should. At the end of verse 4, God mentions the covenant with Levi, and then He says this, beginning in verse 5. Pick up in verse 5. My covenant with him, with Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. The sons of Levi are those whom God chose to be priests, Aaron and his sons. God made a covenant with them. And God recounts that in the past, they'd been faithful to that covenant. They feared the Lord and they stood in awe of His name. They took His worship seriously. They took Him seriously. True instruction was in their mouths and no wrong was found in their lips. They taught the people how to worship. They helped them understand the distinction between the clean and the unclean. They ensured worship was pure and offerings were appropriate and God's word and God's ways were honored. 
The text says they walked before God in peace and uprightness like the blessed man in Psalm 1. They walked in the law of God. They turned many from iniquity. Unlike the priests today who are leading the people into sin, the priests in the past had faithfully led people out of sin. And likewise, in the past, it says their lips guarded knowledge. People sought instruction from them. They were the messengers of the Lord. This is God's intention for His priests. Can you not read this and see how far the priests of this day have fallen? And so the text ends with one final warning in verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And so I don't know if you noticed, but our text this morning both begins and ends with despising. In the beginning, God's priests are despising His name. And in the end, God promises that the priests will be despised by Him. Just as they think little of Him, He too will think little of them. And please don't forget the forest for the trees. How have they despised God's name? By impure worship. God is their Father and their Lord, but they have treated Him lightly, given Him their seconds and thirds, treated Him as though He's no great God at all. They find serving Him to be a weariness. And so what are we to make of this? Well, before we think about us, we need to think about And be thankful that we have a different kind of priest than the sons of Levi. No doubt the people are guilty here in our text this morning. But the worst offenders are those who mediate between God and man, the priests. Friends, we need a better priest. We need Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest... Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. First and foremost, brothers and sisters, this text teaches us about Jesus Christ by way of a contrast. Think about Jesus. He always feared and honored his father. Never, no, not once ever did Jesus hear the words of his father in heaven and think, who cares? Whatever. He's so picky. 
From the beginning of his ministry, the temptation in the wilderness until the end, the garden of Gethsemane, and then the painful cross, he feared and he honored his father. And as a result, he always, always offered him the worship that he is due. Jesus gave the father the best, his time his effort, his energies, his resources, his desires. Can you ever imagine Jesus giving God the leftovers of his time? The leftovers of his energies. Can you imagine Jesus looking at his crops or his herds and and picking out what would cost him the least to give to his father? No! He knows God is worthy of the best and he willingly gave it to him. Why? Why? Because God is a great king who is worthy of Jesus' honor and devotion. He is so worthy to be revealed to the nations for the glorious king that he is. And so Jesus glorified him so well, didn't he? He went everywhere. He went everyone. He talked to. He was simply a walking billboard for the glory of God. Yes, Israel despised him for it, but the nations and the sinners loved him for it. And God's name was glorified. He showed zeal for God's house. True instruction was on his lips. Unlike the priests in our texts, he didn't lead anyone into sin. He led everyone who'd given the time of day out of sin. Do you get the idea? He avoided every sin in this text. And he fulfilled every command in this text. And then, although he did not deserve it, the curses and judgment threatened in this text, he took upon himself. He became unclean on the cross. As it were, he had dung spread all over him. The filth and uncleanness of sin was placed upon him. And he was removed from the presence of God. Hebrews says he suffered outside the camp. Why? Because that's where everything unclean goes. And on the cross, Jesus became filthy. Absolutely filthy. He took the curse of sin. And why did he take the curse of sin? To pay the price for our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians says, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed be everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see, the reality is, it is not just Old Testament Israel who has not given God his due. It is every single person who's lived. And that includes you. God made you. He is your creator. And you have not given him his due. You deserve to be removed from his presence. You deserve his judgment. Have you been thinking about how terrible Israel's actions are as we've been walking through the text? That's you. Are you bothered at all by what I'm saying? 
I hope you are. What should you do? First, a word to those of you who are not Christians. Do not hear this and attempt to reform yourself. Do not attempt to clean up your spiritual act. Do not attempt to do better and be better. That's a fool's errand. Instead, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ. Trust that Jesus has given to God the perfect life of worship that you should have. And trust that Jesus has taken the curse that you deserve. Trust in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. This is the only way that you will be right with God. There, this, this, friends, is the only way you will be free to actually worship God. Which leads me to speak to those of you who name the name of Christ. Brothers and sisters, what is your response this morning? It must be a renewed commitment to worship. Brothers and sisters, the gospel doesn't just negatively free us from our worship of sin and self. Positively, it frees us to worship God as we ought and as He is due. And so the call of our text this morning to those whom God has loved in Christ is this. Are you worshiping God as He deserves? Are you worshiping God as He deserves? Or are you offering Him lackluster, impure, and begrudging worship? Let's just start with the obvious. Are you taking seriously the corporate worship of God on Sunday morning? Are you here? Is this time, is this place a fixed north star on your calendar? Brothers and sisters, there should be no question as to where a Christian is on Sunday morning. A Christian is worshiping his Father and Lord as he has commanded. But there is so much more to this than just being here. When you are here, is your heart right? Are you clear that church is not primarily about relationships or friendships, but it's about worshiping God. From time to time, when I pastorally challenge someone who's spotty in attendance, one reason that's offered is that they just don't feel like they have relationships. Now, aside from the fact that you have to be here to have relationships, it is not primarily about relationships in the first place. It's about worshiping God. How do you approach singing? Are you mindful that God desires you to lift your voice to Him? How do you approach prayer? Are you praying? Or are you looking around or nodding off? How do you approach the table? Do you remember that God calls you to examine yourself, which 
in context is actually a call to ensure that you're right with your brothers and sisters. How about the word? Are you eager to hear God's word preached because you want to just know God more? Are you getting a good night's rest the night before so you can be sharp? Do you do your best to rid yourself of distractions by silencing notifications and putting away your phone? Are you mindful that the live preaching of God's word is special and so you don't want to miss it by milling about in the hall and just hearing it later? Listen, what we do on Sunday mornings is holy. Are you approaching it as such? Or is it a weariness to you? Another Sunday morning. Hope he doesn't go long. Brad's preaching. Better get ready. (laughs) Hope the coffee's good. I don't much care for this series. It's not very exciting. But let's not stop with church on Sunday. Worship isn't just something we do on Sunday. It's every day. Scripture says we're priests. And as priests, we're to offer sacrifices unto God. And those sacrifices are our lives. Our our entire lives are to be offered up in worship to God. Now what does that look like? Only thinking spiritual thoughts always? Riding a a spiritual high always? No, it's, it's less of a feeling and more of everyday faithfulness. It looks like this. It looks like conforming your character to Christ. Being pure as He is pure. Not polluting yourself with what displeases or dishonors him. It looks like giving yourself to the means of grace, to his word and to prayer and to his church. It looks like giving yourself to his mission, ministering the gospel in evangelism and discipleship. It looks like embracing what he says life will be like, namely that our growth as Christians is not passive, it takes work. That God's purposes in our lives are often worked out in the context of suffering. And that opposition and persecution are part and parcel of walking with Jesus in the way of the cross. Are you giving God your best in these realms? Are you giving your best to His church or to other activities? Are you prioritizing the development of spiritual relationships or are you prioritizing extended biological relationships? Are you giving your best to the Word? Do you take in His Word on a daily basis? Do you pray on a daily basis? Brothers and sisters, if you don't have time for this, ask yourself, do I really not have time? Or do I not value it as I should? Are you giving your best to, are you giving God the best of your energies when it comes to evangelism? Do you look for opportunities to share the gospel because your God is a great king and you want him to be known? 
If you're nervous to, to share, are you at least asking for strength in prayer and, and looking for an opportunity to invite your friend to church? Are you giving God your best or your leftovers? When I talk through these things, is there any part of your heart that says, there he goes, talking about church again. There he goes, talking about reading my Bible and prayer again. There he goes, talking about sin again. You know what you're basically saying? You're saying, what a weariness this is. Brothers and sisters, I am talking to you about the basic building blocks of gospel worship. Yes, I will talk to you about these things again. Because I'm nervous that quite unintentionally you are despising the Lord. Thinking little of Him in your heart. Offering up half-hearted worship. Being lazy, apathetic, and lackadaisical in your approach to sin. Now please be clear. I am not saying, do better, be better. Christ has done all for us, and we stand accepted because of Him. However, as God's beloved children, what type of children ought we to be? Ones that give ourselves wholeheartedly to Him in a life of worship. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is never an excuse for laziness under the guise of not being legalistic. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is never an excuse for tolerating sin under the guise of His forgiving grace. The gospel frees us. To do what we were created to do, which is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's not grow weary in offering ourselves to God. He is worthy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what can we offer unto you that is fitting and appropriate, giving, given the fact that you have given to us your best, your son? Oh Lord, only our entire lives. That's fitting and that's right. But it's hard. So give us grace, Father, to not despise you. Give us grace, Father, not to think your service and your worship a weariness. Awake us from our slumber. Stir us and cause us to seek your face afresh in love and in joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.